Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Jenny Reichman, the director of IPF Atid at Israel Policy Forum, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Neri Zilber, who used to be your usual host for this emergency wartime briefing. Neri is a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor with Israel Policy Forum. How's it going, Neri? Hi, Shani. It's been two weeks, so I haven't seen you since before Thanksgiving, actually. That's right. Hopefully your Thanksgiving was uh, relaxing, restful. Uh, over here, there was a ceasefire, so I suppose that is more relaxing and more restful than uh, wartime, or proper wartime. But yes, I've been usurped uh, during this war by, uh, by you as host, and that's, uh, that's fine by me. <laughs> we're, we're actually very grateful that since our last podcast, we have some good news to report finally, which is that 60 hostages have been released as part of a temporary ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Uh, there's been This has been going on for six days now, but as of this recording, which is about noon Eastern time on Wednesday, November 29th, uh, we still don't know if it's going to be extended or not, and if so, by how much. Um, but we've seen some really heartwarming videos and pictures of families returning to Israel over the past uh, week or so. And and honestly, I think it's what we all needed, even though, of course, there are still so many hells in Hamas captivity, around 140, I believe, uh, after the end of this deal, um, including families being separated. But at the very least, it's been so hopeful to see the return of some women and children hostages. Now, there's a lot to discuss for us just in terms of the situation in the Gaza Strip and that one front of the war alone. Um, and we'll, we have to mention as well that the past few weeks we've seen violence erupting in the West Bank as well, uh, not only in the crackdown on terrorism and Hamas operatives, but also settlers taking matters into their own hands. There's also pressure from the international community ramping up on Israel to end this war and Israeli politics continuing as usual, even throughout this time. So let's first address uh, the hostage deal itself and what exactly happened over the past six days of the deal, where we might be headed. And I think it's not overstating to say that Israelis and Jews really everywhere are holding their breath as long as hostages remain in Gaza. I remember on that very first day, kind of everybody, every WhatsApp uh, kind of erupting at once, right? Everyone kind of checking their news app over and over again. I reached the the point where I was Googling how long it takes on Google Maps to get from Khan Yunus to the Rafah crossing. How many minutes are you waiting? How long is it supposed to take? You know, everybody really was going through the ringer that day. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously it ended in a very kind of happy note and uplifting. But how did this deal come about and what are the different components of it? And as somebody who's, you know, in Israel watching the families return, what has that felt like? So you're not the only one. Uh, every Israeli, really, over the past six days now has been glued to the TV. And especially in the evenings and into the night when, uh, like you said, these handovers from from Hamas to the Red Cross and then the Red Cross to usually the Rafah crossing, but not always the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt and then back into Israel. It's all minute by minute, not even hour by hour, but just in real time, you're watching videos and then the return. Uh, and then obviously later on, the really heartwarming reunions between uh, the hostages, which uh, have all been uh, women and children uh, and their, their loved ones. So like you said, Shani, uh, after two very, very difficult months, uh, these last few days have been uh, a real ray of sunshine, but also tinged with the realization that number one, uh, a lot of the, the families that were held in captivity were separated. So you have situations where uh, fathers and even brothers uh, have been kept uh, in captivity and their sisters or daughters have been uh, released back into Israel. Uh, and even in one case, a, a blatant violation of the agreement where Hamas uh, released uh, a young girl and her mother was kept in captivity, even though we, we all know that, uh, and this came out, Later on, uh, the mother was with the girl the entire time until a day or two before the release. So it's been both uh, the world's best and worst reality TV show, Shani, uh, over the past six days. Uh, the best because these people are getting out of, uh, of the hell of captivity in Gaza, uh, but also the worst because, uh, um, you know, the entire country, and if not the world, is glued uh, to the TV watching uh, Israeli Israelis, and also, by the way, foreign nationals, a lot of uh, Thai and Filipino uh, workers also released as part of this agreement or as part of the hostage release, but not the agreement. Uh, but it's it's been bittersweet in the sense that uh, everyone's marching to Hamas's tune. Uh, and like you said, a lot of Israelis still remain in captivity and the prospects for getting them out are as of yet unclear. Uh, so like you said, we're recording this 
well, uh, Wednesday night Israel time. So by the time everyone listens to it, we should know whether the deal for uh, pause and fighting and also continued hostage releases will continue for at least another, say, day or two, uh, whether it all uh, collapses and we're back to proper, proper fighting. And to what extent did Hamas actually abide by the ceasefire beyond obviously separating mothers and their children? Um, did they actually abstain from kind of sending missiles into Israel and other forms of, of warfare? Or did they kind of break that ceasefire and Israel chose to ignore it, which is was sort of my sense. No, I'm still unsure. No, on the whole, they, they adhere to the ceasefire. And by the way, not just Hamas, but the thousands of other gunmen and terrorists and militants in the Gaza Strip. So in and of itself, uh, that wasn't a given uh, when the deal was con- concluded, what, a week ago exactly, I think. But uh, they overhaul kept to it, uh, again, with minor infractions. There was an infraction, I believe, a few days ago. There was a IEDs uh, exploded on uh, near Israeli forces in the north and Gaza Strip uh, and a few other violations. But on the whole, it's held. Uh, it's held by both sides, which is a good thing because it allowed more hostages to be released. Uh, but also, even more indicatively, Uh, and this goes to the wider conversation about the war, Uh, it just shows you what command and control Hamas and really its leadership, Yehia Sinwar that we talked about last time, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, and Mohammed Def, the head of the military wing, and others exert over their forces and all the other forces. So the notion that they sent thousands of their fighters across the border into Israel, and well, things got out of control, and uh, it might not have been all Hamas people, and all those other narratives you hear now, uh, especially uh, internationally and on social media, that uh, Hamas didn't expect uh, the events and the atrocities that occurred on October 7th, or that these were just rabble that crossed the, the border, it just doesn't hold water. Because we've seen now over six days, the massive level of control Hamas still exerts, by the way, exerts in a war uh, where it's lost a big chunk of its territory in northern Gaza, including uh, large parts of Gaza City. So just an FYI in terms of uh, the, the debate about the war and the overall conversation, especially on uh, social media these days. So speaking of Hamas's strength, and I think it's very interesting to because on the one hand, we there was this sentiment that if Hamas was willing to release hostages for sort of merely three prisoners, which is, you know, a very different ratio than what we've seen the Gilad Shalit deal in the past and other deals like that, um, that they must be very desperate. And while that may be true, it's very clear that they still retain a lot of power, like you said, to control Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other terror factions and kind of rein them in. Um, so so my next question is about sort of the potential to, to continue this deal. I'm not sure to what extent it's true, but we are hearing a lot of rumors going around about Hamas's willingness to release all of the hostages, which I presume includes soldiers who at the end will be very difficult to extract any other way um, in exchange for kind of ending the war entirely. Um, now, from the Israeli government, I have seen no indication that they're going to be willing to take a deal like that. Um, but the question stands, which is that if at a certain point it becomes a choice between releasing the hostages and continuing the ground invasion, which dismantles Hamas, what is what is that choice going to look like? Because certainly the hostage families will exert a ton of pressure on the government um, to kind of take that deal. Um, but we've already seen many in the government say if there is no continuation of the war, they are out. Yeah. Um, so what do you see there? So- all very good questions, Shani. I'll say a couple things. Number one, uh, Hamas isn't desperate. Uh, I think we mentioned and we got into it last time. Uh, I think Yehia Sinwar thinks he's winning right now for various reasons. Uh, so I don't believe they they entered into this agreement out of uh, a sense or a feeling of desperation. It was part of their overall strategy. You get rid of the women and children and babies, and that helps your image as this benevolent resistance movement uh, internationally and especially in large pockets of of the West. Uh, That number one helps uh, international legitimacy and international legitimacy and international pressure on Israel uh, brought to bear may force Israel to end the war sooner rather than later. Uh, Hamas lives to fight another day, i.e. they emerge victorious. Uh, Also, we have to talk about the other equation of this hostage deal, which is the prisoner releases. So one Israeli hostage for every three Palestinian prisoners, uh, again, women and minors being held in Israeli jails, 
for various security offenses. So releasing Palestinians from prison always is uh, is a huge deal. Uh, Yahya Sinwar himself was released in the Gilad Shalit deal. Uh, so it's a issue near and dear to his heart. When he was released in 2011, he vowed to his fellow prisoners that he would get them out in future, uh, no matter how long it took. And he's trying to to make good on his word. But again, Palestinians, we've seen this over the past six days as well. There isn't just scenes of uh, of jubilation and uh, and celebration uh, amongst the Israeli public, also amongst the Palestinian public. Uh, in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, you see this every night, uh, throngs of people, a lot of them holding up uh, Hamas flags, chanting uh, Mohammed Def and Sinwar's name, and chanting in favor of the Qassam Brigades, the Hamas military wing. Uh, it's a huge deal in Palestinian society, and so Sinwar and Hamas are the ones who quote-unquote delivered it to them uh, and not, say, rival factions like uh, like the Fatah movement uh, that nominally is supposed to, to control uh, the West Bank and, and the Palestinian Authority. So it's a huge deal for them uh, politically and, and also in the Arab world as well. Uh, so we can't lose sight of that. And in terms of the, uh, how should I put it, the politics behind a further uh, deal, I think the deal could be extended on its current terms for another few days. Uh, that in and of itself has been approved by the Israeli government, uh, despite uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir's party voting against, but it enjoys wall-to-wall consensus uh, politically in Israel and also just society-wide. So we can, in theory, make it to, to the weekend and get uh, all the women and children back, um, non-soldiers, uh, or at least hopefully most of the women and children back, uh, and then the question is, what happens afterwards? Now, there are ongoing talks in Qatar uh, between the Qataris, the Egyptian Mukhabarat um, Intelligence Service, uh, CIA chief Bill Burns, and also the head of Mossad, uh, David Barnea. And they're nominally trying to figure out whether a further agreement, uh, again, pause and fighting, but also further hostage and prisoner releases, is possible. Now, Nobody in Israel is against hostage releases. It's just a question of the price. Uh, the price in terms of how many Palestinian prisoners you're going to release for every Israeli, number one. And then number two, uh, how long you suspend or pause the fighting. Now, what you said earlier is, is correct. Uh, there are key elements and key members of Netanyahu's coalition who don't want to suspend the fighting indefinitely and also aren't willing to release massive amounts of Palestinian prisoners, especially ones that actually have committed murder uh, and have committed horrible terrorist crimes, uh, what they call here in Israel, uh, they have blood on their hands. Uh, they're not willing to countenance that. Uh, people like Ben Gvir, like Betel Smotrich, and even maybe parts of the Likud party. Um, so a broader deal and an expanded deal would be problematic, um, and the price will be, I imagine, very high. So Gilad Shalit, uh, the one Israeli soldier seized in 2006, uh, right outside uh, the border of Gaza, uh, after five and a half years, uh, was traded for over a thousand Palestinian prisoners, including Yehi Sinwar. So the, the heaviest of the heaviest uh, Palestinian prisoners. So again, uh, you could start talking about uh, older older men, uh, perhaps women soldiers and the like. Uh, but again, what the price for that will be, uh, difficult difficult to say. And I'm, I'm not entirely convinced the Israeli public would be willing to pay it. Although, like you said, the hostage family is very clearly, and I've talked to, to many of them. I was in Hostage Square in central Tel Aviv, near the Tel Aviv Museum, uh, two nights ago. And the people there were very clear. The banners are very clear. Uh, pay any price to release the hostages. Uh, it's not going to be a victory in this war unless all the hostages are returned. And uh, I heard this from, from one relative of, uh, of a 30-something-year-old uh, father uh, held in, in captivity in Gaza. Um, pay any price, and then you can destroy Hamas afterwards. So again, it won't be an easy decision, but I'm also not convinced that the decision uh, would be put to this government in Israel anytime soon either. Hmm. So let's assume that the ground invasion continues um, at the end of, let's say it's another few days from now. How is that going to look? Will it look similar to how it looked in the north? Because 
It was an enormous level of destruction from what we could see, and it appears to be pretty uninhabitable. And right now, you have almost all Gazans, which is to say around 2 million people in the south. So you you have, you know, a population that's already pretty dense has now doubled in the south. Um, and so do you move them all to the north, which, again, is uninhabitable? What, what does it look like? I, I can't imagine it can take the same shape that it did before. And is there some sort of alternative way they can conduct the war um, to kind of prevent uh, having further devastation? And I'm also wondering if you can comment on some of the numbers that came out, I think, today um, or in the last few days from the IDF around sort of the the militant to civilian ratio um, and how accurate they were. Because last we spoke, we only had numbers from Hamas and nothing from the IDF. And I believe that's starting to change. So uh, you'll be happy to know this is the article I'm writing right now uh, before we hopped on. So uh, I don't want to betray oh, if, if any other journalists and competitors <laughs> are, are listening. I'm not going to betray all my all my sources. But, uh, but this is a key question uh, going forward, right? Not a question of if Israel resumes the ground offensive in Gaza, but when? And it could be tonight or tomorrow morning if the deal the deal for an extension collapses, or it'll be in a couple of days or next week um, after, after an extension uh, is secured and, and more hostages are, are released, but it is happening. It is happening. Uh, Israel, you hear it from the prime minister on down, uh, you're, you can't end the war right now because Israel for its part, hasn't achieved uh, any of the objectives. Uh, it hasn't destroyed Hamas as a military force in the Gaza Strip. It hasn't destroyed Hamas as a, as a governing regime in the Gaza Strip, especially in the south. Uh, and it hasn't secured uh, the release of all the hostages. Uh, so the, the, the war will continue. But uh, like, you, like you posited, Shani, uh, what form will it take, especially in the south? And like you said, uh, the mass evacuation of people from North Gaza to the south, uh, over a million people, was, uh, was a trick that you can't repeat. In the south, you can't send people back north. Uh, the north, to the best of our understanding, uh, a lot of it lies in ruins. Uh, so the question is how you conduct your ground offensive, and there will be a ground offensive into southern Gaza, uh, differently, and it will be different. Uh, now, again, I'm not going to get into too many details, but it It'll be, I imagine, and from my information, less forces than what you saw in the north. And it'll be keyed in on, say, two central uh, areas of southern Gaza and, uh, and not you know, the entire part of the territory. And we hear this uh, increasingly from Biden administration officials in recent days uh, that a lot more accounting will have to be done in terms of the humanitarian situation in the south and safe zones for in the south that uh, Gazans can can move to, uh, even even those who have uh, have already evacuated from the north. So again, it'll have to be done very carefully. Uh, the Biden administration is putting a lot of pressure on Israel to formulate a a different plan. Uh, essentially, they want to see less civilian casualties and more uh, a more accounting and more humanitarian aid uh, for for Gazans in. The southern part of the strip. Uh, so that's that's the best I can do uh, without reading you uh, the entire uh, the entire draft that's only half finished of this article. But hopefully it'll be coming out uh, uh, soon. Uh, that's what I keep telling my editors. Uh, and in terms of <laughs> in terms of the the casualty numbers, look, uh, this is a very very uh, delicate, controversial, pick your adjective issue and question. There are two there are two things. Uh, whether the casualty count overall coming out of Gaza is accurate, um, it's hard to say. Uh, this war is on a different scale than all previous Gaza wars. Uh, past Gaza wars, by the way, have been, have been fairly accurate in terms of their accounting, but this one is on a different scale. The health authorities there are um, non-functioning, especially in the north. There's a lot more destruction and devastation, so it's hard to account for, for all people. Uh, and also the stakes are higher. So there's more of an incentive for both Hamas and, by extension, the Hamas-controlled health authorities in Gaza to lie. Right? This is a this is a existential war for Hamas, uh, and so there's more of an incentive for them to to fudge the numbers. I will say that a report that I saw, um, it wasn't made public, uh, but in terms of the actual uh, death count coming out of Gaza, uh, it severely underrepresents. Uh, males, 
especially fighting age males uh, in, in the death count, that it's almost, I think, 60 to 80% women and children, which doesn't make much sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also that's, that's a key indication that, um, you know, it might not be an accurate accounting. Uh, and then, like you said, does that mean there are more that there are more civilians dead or, or let's say more, there are more dead, but it's militants than the number that no, we're that, receiving, that the number the 14,000, the, the number overall might be accurate that you see, uh, quoted, uh, in the media, ah. that it's, I think now almost 15,000 in terms of the official number, uh, but that it's highly underrepresenting uh, the number of males um, that actually mm-hmm. exist in the Gaza Strip, whether they're combatants or not combatants. And obviously, if you're a male of a certain age, it's more likely that you're going to be a combatant. Uh, on top of which, uh, we have received figures of late. These are more estimates. I'm not even sure they they can account accurately. But from the IDF, uh, according to the IDF count, which again, we need to take with a, with a grain of salt. Uh, we talked about this uh, last time as well. Uh, but somewhere around 5,000 uh, Hamas fighters have been killed. So in theory, that's a third, which wouldn't be a terrible ratio um, in terms of uh, war fighting and, and proportionality. I mean, that's that's kind of a as far as wars go, if that number is true, that's a, a very impressive ratio, frankly. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's it's devastating to think about, you know, 10,000 civilians being killed. We should, no, no. And you know, we can't uh, emphasize that enough. But but to own, to have, you know, 33 percent of the people killed be militants is 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 pretty successful from the perspective of, you know, not being indiscriminate in how you're going about your war. Yeah. And and look, uh you know, is the idea of counting the thousand or fifteen hundred Hamas and other fighters and militants and terrorists that came across the border that were killed on October seventh? Um, it's unclear. Uh, is it mm-hmm. a full accounting of of all the Hamas terrorists uh, that are still located inside the tunnels? I, again, I'm not in, entirely sure. The IDF knows exactly. It's an estimate, uh, along with the estimate coming out of Gaza. Uh, so. Uh, you know, it, it works both ways, but uh, we we do need to take into account uh, the fact that when you see that death count coming out of Gaza, uh, it's both civilians, and again, it's, every civilian life is a tragedy, and we need to be empathetic to what regular Gazans that are not Hamas are going through, and that's a really, really important point that uh, oftentimes is not uh, reciprocated. Uh, in terms of Israelis and Israeli civilians, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, but that the death count is both civilian non-combatants and also militants. Um, so it's not just 100 percent, 15,000 uh, dead women and children inside Gaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's helpful to know. I mean, at the end of the day, we won't know probably until long after the war is over, or at least soon after it's over. The, the real numbers, but um, I, I do think it's interesting to see sort of the ratio and. Maybe next week we can – I don't know how accessible this information is, but I'm curious to see how it compares for other wars because in many of the conversations that those of us in the United States and other places abroad are having, um, it's very much calls into question to what extent Israel is protecting civilian life. And it is it is important to know that um, for for folks who are having these conversations regularly. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the conversations uh, uh, people are having <laughs> outside of Israel. Uh I'm obviously attached uh, to the international media. I'm very aware of the conversations uh, that are happening in that space. Uh, and it's also a very different conversation than the one having being conducted you know amongst Israeli or Israeli Jews. Uh, we also have to be mindful mindful of that, uh, just the the different conversations going on uh, at the same time about about the same war and the same events. and mm-hmm. and look, We've talked about this over the past, I think this is the seventh emergency wartime podcast on the Israel Policy Pod. Uh, This is a war unlike any other for a million reasons, but I don't think any any war has been fought into a territory like Gaza, which is one of the most densely populated uh, areas in the world, against an enemy like Hamas, very sophisticated, very capable, that has had 16 years to turn Gaza into a military fortress, both above and below ground, an extensive tunnel network, probably unlike anything anyone's ever built. Uh, it would make the Viet Cong uh, uh, blush 
to see what Hamas has built under the, the sand of Gaza. On top of the always combustible, radioactive, again, pick your adjective, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so the magnifying glass that we've talked about uh, in the past, and on top of which, again, uh, the world's worst hostage crisis, uh, and essentially going for a regime change in Hamastan, a statelet uh, that borders Israel that has been allowed to grow and build itself uh, over the course of 16 years, uh, again, against an enemy that's both a state and non-state actor. It controls Gaza. It's what everybody in the international community, including the UN, calls the de facto authority in Gaza, and it has no qualms about uh, hiding within the civilian population. So uh, a huge challenge, unlike anything uh, arguably ever seen in warfare before, uh, definitely by a, a Western democracy and Western army. So now that we're on this thread of how the international community and and outsiders see the conflict and see this war uh, and how different it is from those inside Israel and their experience, especially throughout all of this sort of psychological trauma and torment that's really ongoing um, in the wake of October 7th. Uh, I have I have this question for you about Joe Biden in particular and the U.S. president, because I think he's probably as close as it comes to somebody who's not Jewish and not Israeli to, you know, really aligning himself and understanding the Israeli narrative and and perspective and what what they are going through. And he's been so incredibly supportive, really from day one, making it so clear that he stands shoulder to shoulder with Israel. You know, he visited Israel amidst the war. He's sent um, Tony Blinken there several times already, immediately sent his supplies and arms and and in the past few weeks, I mean, really from day one, but increasing uh, tremendously, I would say the past two or three weeks or so, there are growing calls from the progressive camp and his party, um, and frankly, far beyond the usual suspects. I mean, it's not just the, you know, the squad, uh, let's say, growing calls uh, for a ceasefire, you know, whatever that means. And I, we can talk about sort of the merits of calling for that and, and what it means, given that, of course, Hamas is li- unlikely to actually release all the hostage, hostages, but, um, you know, there are a lot of calls, um, not just from the U.S., but but really around the world um, and from many of Israel's allies. And there's limited support for them to continue the ground invasion after this, especially because now that we've paused, I think people are are kind of pleased to see that aid is going in um, and and really, you know, anxious to see what Israel does next. Um, and and so I'm wondering, you know, how people in Israel are reacting to that. Um, and, and how it's going to be balanced, how it's going to impact this war, because Joe Biden had an op-ed uh, in The Washington Post, which I, you know, I thought was very, very reasonable with its request, but it did express an interest in Israel being far more cautious in how they go about this war um, in the coming weeks, days, months, unclear, go, I suppose. Go months. Um, but I, I'm, months. Months. Okay. <laughs> not not ideal. Um so I'm wondering how Israel's going to balance this need to dismantle Hamas, um, which, as you said, I mean, hasn't we haven't even Israel has not even eradicated their governing power, let alone their military capabilities. Um, but how, you know, Biden is also going to react to this and hold up against pressure from his own party and recognizing he, of course, has an election that he needs to win in a year. Yeah, um, it's a tough spot for President Biden. Uh, I should say uh, I'll betray some of my reporting. Uh, we're not nearly halfway there. And this isn't me saying it, uh, it's multiple people privy to uh, Israel's mm-hmm. uh, war strategy. We're not, we're not halfway there. Uh, and again, things can speed up, things may slow down, but this is just a state of play right now uh, before the pause, right? So on the eve of, of mm-hmm. the pause. So that's just in terms of, of context that we all have to be very clear-eyed uh, about what's been accomplished so far, what more needs to be done, and how long this all will take uh, to achieve the objectives laid out, which uh, seem eminently reasonable, which is, uh, like we said, to to eliminate Hamas as uh, both a military and governing force uh, in the Gaza Strip, essentially regime change, uh, which, by the way, President Biden and his administration are all in favor of. It's just an issue in the question, which they've said from the beginning, how you go about it. Now, the, the op-ed, I thought, that was published in the Washington Post, I believe, this past Sunday, uh, I think struck a good balance between recognizing Israel's right to defend itself and the need uh, to eliminate Hamas as a threat from the Gaza Strip, 
while also urging and cajoling Israel to do a better job on the two issues that we discussed at the top, which is uh, civilian casualties and the humanitarian situation inside the Gaza Strip. And so it behooves both the Israeli politicians and also the Israeli military to devise uh, a better a better situation. And uh, a lot of what Biden's op-ed and also American officials in their conversations with Israeli officials uh, have been saying is that uh, uh, this this needs to be done both for its own sake, right? Just to uh, not harm or unduly punish uh, non-involved Gazans for uh, the sins of of its uh, of its rulers, really a dictatorship. Uh, no matter how many you know supporters Hamas has inside Gaza, they're not all Hamas uh, inside Gaza, and we have to be very clear about that. And, and also to alleviate uh, international pressure, not only on Israel but also by extension on on the U.S. and the and the Biden administration, uh, primarily. And this goes back to your original point, uh, due to uh, certain elements and political movements uh, inside the states and uh, especially inside the Democratic Party, uh, essentially the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, uh, which, as we all know, is, is up in arms uh, over this war. Uh, from my understanding, and Chani, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they're willing to, or at least some of them are willing to uh, re-elect Donald Trump to punish Israel and help the Palestinians. I don't know how, how that would work. Uh, it seems like they're only going to be punishing themselves uh, if they assist and aid uh, in, in toppling Biden in his re-election bid next November and uh, helping to re-elect Donald Trump. But that's, I think, a, an issue for, for a different uh, podcast or maybe this podcast, but at a different time. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, this is what U.S. officials uh, from the top on down in the Biden administration are, are asking, and almost in certain cases in recent days, demanding of Israel uh, to maintain, like you said, the very strong support uh, that the U.S. has shown Israel uh, from the very beginning, uh, unprecedented, and we talked about this in, in previous episodes, uh, not just Biden sending uh, carrier strike groups and ammunition and weapons uh, to Israel in the Middle East and holding a very firm line against uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and, and Iran and various other proxies in the region, but also uh, the president himself uh, making a visit here during wartime uh, when rockets were falling. Uh, not when he visited, uh, as, as we talked about too, on this podcast, but uh, before and after he visited. So uh, again, the Israelis are aware they need to do a better job. Netanyahu, and we can get into it now, the domestic politics are uh, a major impediment uh, to, say, facilitating things like more humanitarian aid into Gaza. Uh, the far-right members of Netanyahu's coalition go all up in arms, um, you know, it's unhelpful. They need to see the bigger picture, but they, they always don't. Uh, and also everything that's happening in the West Bank. So uh, you mentioned this in, in your opening, but uh, there's also a lot of concern with regard to, to everything happening in the West Bank uh, over the past two months. Oh, we will get to that. But I, I do want to stop at this Israeli domestic politics note that we've been on um, because it, it definitely seems and we've been saying this for in every single podcast since the war started that Netanyahu is continuing to demonstrate that he believes he has a political future um, and thus continues to you know give some level of autonomy and keep in his coalition the far right um, even when they kind of get in the way of his war strategy and I have to tell you coming from the states they definitely get in the way of public perception of Israel and the war um, right. And and we've spoken about this before when they say really extreme things, which are then quoted back yep. to, to those of us who are, you know, trying to defend Israel's strategy. And then you, um, so it is it is really crucial. And then you try to explain to mm -hmm. the people you're talking to that these uh, these people, even if they're ministers with very nice titles, have no power, no influence and shouldn't be taken mm -hmm. seriously. Uh, but they, I agree with you. They cause massive amounts of damage uh, consistently to the Israeli war effort. Right. Ultimately, the perception of the public does matter, even if governments aren't buying it, right? They impact, um, as we spoke about Joe Biden's reelection, and uh, certainly in many other countries, public pressure has a, a massive impact um, on how they're going to approach this war and, and Israel going forward. So we do need to keep an eye on that. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm also wondering if you could talk a bit about the war cabinet um, and Benny Gantz's role in all of this. So who is actually driving the decision making for this war? Um, and do you 
trust that those making the decisions have the country's best interests in mind, um, or are they still kind of playing politics and capitulating to sort of extremist voices, especially as I think we are all hoping that, you know, Israel treats the South very differently from how it treated the North um, and really takes into consideration uh, the civilian toll. Not, not that it hasn't, surely it has, um, but thinking about how complex the war is going to become even more so than it was up until this point um, and, and their ability to do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, uh, International pressure matters greatly, like you said, because Israel needs time, like I said, uh, to achieve its military objectives and its war aims. And so every time you have a member of uh, the Israeli government or even the cabinet saying insane things, uh, that's not helpful because then it goes immediately out into the international bloodstream and it gets picked up and it just... uh, it just heaps pressure on governments. By the way, most of the governments uh, in the West are, are still supportive of Israel. They're just counseling for more restraint, uh, but they're they're still on side, uh, so to speak. But it doesn't help uh, when these comments uh, and remarks are made, uh, and also everything happening in the West Bank. So we've talked about this before, but there is a major IDF operation uh, in the West Bank. Uh, primarily against Hamas and other terrorist and militant groups, uh, but not only. And it's ongoing uh, every day, uh, a very, very serious operation. Uh, we've said it before, but if if the Gaza war wasn't happening, this would be the biggest news in the world, uh, arguably, just uh, the security operation undertaken in the West Bank, uh, combined with what we saw more last month, but it's still going on, you know, extremist settlers either attacking Palestinians and even in some cases shooting Palestinians or using the quote-unquote opportunity of the Gaza war to uh, evict Palestinians from from their land in the West Bank. Uh, there's also an ongoing, effectively, uh, you know, a closure and restrictions in, in movement in the West Bank. Uh, the Israeli government led uh, or spearheaded by Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, another far-right uh, minister. They've uh, limited tax transfers that Israel transfers to the Palestinian Authority every month. So there's a major economic crunch uh, in the West Bank, in the PA. Uh, that's not helpful if the PA security forces uh, don't go, don't uh, don't get paid. So all of it combined, uh, extremely unhelpful on its own merits, and also extremely unhelpful for the overall war effort. Uh, now, to your question. Uh, is the war cabinet that is actually prosecuting this war uh, aware of this? Yes, it's aware of it. Uh, has it done enough to to stymie these uh, corrosive and negative either statements or actions on the ground? I'd argue not enough. Not enough. And uh, I think that that speaks to Netanyahu's belief, and it's a real belief that he and the people around him still have, that he has a political future. And that if and when that future arrives uh, after this war ends at some point. Uh, He'll need these far-right politicians and movements and voters uh, to cling to to power. And so in and of itself, that's the the kind of uh, original sin of of all of this, uh, that if Netanyahu actually did take a firmer stance um, up to and maybe including firing these ministers that make these insane statements, um, you know, it would help Israel's uh, overall uh, perception uh, in in the international arena, uh, and that would in turn help the war effort. But he hasn't done that because uh, he thinks there's a day after, uh, not only for Gaza, but also for him. Yeah. So speaking of uh, self-serving politicians, <laughs> how are Palestinian Authority officials behaving in this moment? We've seen some pretty troubling statements coming out of the PA. Uh, so where is where is Mahmoud Abbas in all of this? Um, and, and kind of how is he, as you mentioned, the Palestinian Authority is extremely weak right now, including the security forces. And so I, I do recognize kind of the need for him to maintain whatever shred of credibility he has left. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious to know if, if you're hearing other reports coming out of the out of the PA in the West Bank. So, yes. Um, I mean, where to begin? Uh, the Palestinian Authority and especially their officials, uh, whether in the West Bank or outside of the West Bank, uh, their public statements have not been have not been helpful, uh, to say the least. They haven't quite condemned the atrocities and the massacres of October seventh. 
they've, for whatever reason, stood in solidarity with Hamas. Uh, they're the first ones who crack down on Hamas in the West Bank. Uh, they're no fans of Hamas because Hamas are no fans of theirs. Uh, we can just think back to how Hamas seized power in the Gaza Strip in 2007 in six days, uh, evicting the Fatah forces and the PA forces uh, in sometimes very brutal fashion. So there's no love lost between uh, the two main Palestinian factions, but this happens in every Gaza war, where from the Rais, from the President Mahmoud Abbas on down, uh, they feel that they need to stand in solidarity uh, with Hamas and, and with Gazans. And again, politically it's, it's understandable, but it's, uh, it's not helpful, especially in terms of Israeli-Palestinian ties, whether political or social. Um, so we saw a statement from one Palestinian official, I believe, a day or two ago that we, uh, that we all know quite well, uh, which was, um, for lack of a better word, disgraceful. And this was an interview he gave uh, to, to an Arabic uh, TV channel, uh, and he's supposed to be one of the moderates and one of the pragmatists uh, on the Palestinian Authority and Fatah side. Again, um, I'm not going to make excuses for it, uh, but it does happen Every Gaza war, I've heard it myself directly, uh, and then you kind of look at them, um, you know, not not publicly and not on the record. You say, you know, you're not really, you're not really in favor of Hamas remaining in power in Gaza, uh, and then you know they'll they'll sing a different tune uh, in private when the cameras or the microphones uh, are not rolling. So. The leadership in, in the West Bank in Ramallah um, is trying to thread this very delicate needle uh, during this very delicate time. Uh, but big picture, you talk to everybody who deals with the day after in Gaza, when this war will end and all wars do end, and what can replace Hamas in the Gaza Strip. So you talk to Israeli officials and they'll tell you two things. Number one, they'll tell you you know, when you ask the question, who will uphold basic security inside the Gaza Strip? They'll say, well, not Hamas. It's like, okay, but but what what is the not Hamas element? And then all kinds of ideas will be floated, ranging from international or Arab peacekeepers to the Palestinian Authority security forces. Uh, now, even they kind of admit that that in the current state of things is, is not realistic, but down the line, right? And that's the kind of the best answer because there is no good answer. And if it's not those types of, uh, say, external external security forces, then it'll have to be the IDF. And the IDF doesn't want to do it uh, for for many reasons. So that's one thing the, the Israeli officials uh, will tell you. And then uh, the second thing is that it, you know, essentially the day after we'll have to um, bring back in a quote-unquote revitalized Palestinian authority, you know, reformed, strengthened, and all of that, which, again, is fine on paper, it's fine as a PowerPoint slide, but what do you need to do to get from point A to point B? How do you revitalize? How do you strengthen the Palestinian authority so it's in a position to, sometime in the future, uh, take control or reassert control, right, to come back uh, to Gaza, and Israel has a major, major part to play in that. Uh, but the problem, and going back to our previous question, is that large elements of this Israeli government don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to hear it, they don't want to talk about it, because it's so politically radioactive amongst the Israeli far right. Uh, and so that is a major obstacle because in a different political context, you could say, okay, look, we're not thrilled with what the Palestinian Authority leaders uh, are saying, but they've proven themselves over a decade plus to be actual security partners in the West Bank. And even over the past two months, uh, the Palestinian Authority security forces, and I'll keep repeating this like I have in previous episodes, uh, have not turned their guns on either Israeli soldiers or Israeli civilians which is not a given, given the overall political and financial climate right now in the West Bank. And it's night and day different than what happened in the opening stages of the Second Intifada, when the PA security forces led by uh, then Palestinian President Yasser Arafat joined in immediately, as did the entire Fatah, Tanzim, the grassroots militia. 
So again, we haven't seen that, and that's an amazingly huge and good thing, uh, but it's not a given. And so a different Israeli government would not take that as a given either and would do its utmost to actually bolster and strengthen the PA instead of undermining the PA. Yeah. While we're while we're discussing sort of the day after in Gaza, I want to read some of the some of the polling that came out from our friends in the Mitvim Institute about public attitudes about the day after the war. Um, they they polled fo- Israelis on the, the question was the long term political goal of the war in Gaza is and half of the people said either the two state solution or unilateral separation, uh, which I think is really important um, with only, with 28 percent still alarmingly high, but 28 percent saying annexation um, of Gaza and the West Bank. Right. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And only five percent said continued conflict management, which to me says there are basically no Israelis who want to go back to October 6th. Um, right, who there nobody is interested to returning to the status quo, um, which I think is fascinating, given that for so long Israelis were really convinced that the status quo was the only way. Um, and another question they asked was, "Who would you like to see in control of Gaza after the end of the war?" Thirty-nine percent said an international force, and thirty-seven percent said Israel. Okay. Um, so really, pretty similar uh, <laughs> numbers, um, with thirteen percent saying the Palestinian Authority, um, and only and zero percent said a weakened Hamas. Okay, so that also tells us something. Um, so I just think it's very interesting. Um, t- frankly, these are not very radical opinions, um, and given what I would expect in a in a war like this one, where you know people people's mistrust of each of the other of Palestinians in general is so high, so rightfully high. Um, so I, I think it's just important to note that. Um, and a lot of uh, folks were polled on, you know, if you support a multinational force, what would it look like? Um, and I th- many folks were quite amenable to it being having Western powers um, along with, you know, moderate Arab countries involved, too. Uh, so I just think that's interesting to say that when we think about the day after for the war, there's also public perception in a country like Israel, which is a democracy, really does matter um, in a lot of ways. So I'm hoping that sort of the government looks to these polling to recognize what the people's desire is, um, which is to not really reoccupy the Gaza Strip, certainly not in the long term. Right. Uh, I'm not that surprised by those polling numbers. Uh, it's always good to get an indication of where the public mood is, um, with the caveat that the public mood is oftentimes not led, but influenced by the political leadership and what they hear in terms of realistic options. And it'd be great if the political leadership here in Israel at the moment uh, leveled with the public uh, and was more frank about the fact that uh, there are no really good options for the day after. Um, I think our colleagues Shira Efron and Michael Koplo uh, of Israel Policy Forum are are working on something on that very issue. But uh, yes, uh, I'm I'm sure the Israeli public would be thrilled if someone else, uh, international or Arab peacekeeping force, took the problem of Gaza off Israel's hands. Uh, but Israeli officials in private will tell you that nobody is going to be very keen to step up and and deal with that uh, and take Gaza off, off Israel's hands. And by the way, uh, it's not entirely clear to my mind, uh, and I've heard this firsthand, whether Israeli, at least military officers, would be all too keen of having, say, uh, British or Emirati or Egyptian peacekeepers patrolling the streets of Gaza uh, with remnants of Hamas or other militant groups still there, and Israel still uh, feeling the need to either conduct raids or strike at those militants. That, in other words, it could be a, a constraining factor uh, on Israeli security. Um, it would be a very, very difficult and very messy reality, which brings us back to the Palestinian Authority, right? To have uh, an indigenous Palestinian force. Um, with legitimacy, hopefully, in future, come back and, and reassert uh, its control uh, over Gaza. Again, that's easier said than done, and it have to be a, a long process, but it seems to be the, the most realistic and the most sustainable option, uh, short of full IDF reoccupation of the Gaza Strip, uh, which uh, had been tried, and then Israel, uh, as we know, but is uh, forgotten, especially over the past two months, withdrew from the entirety of the Gaza Strip, soldiers and settlers uh, in 2005. So that uh, that has been tried as well. And that's uh, what makes all this a bit, a bit more difficult, uh, that if you withdraw from an area, you have to uh, make sure that uh, the, the partner that's taking control uh, is strengthened, is bolstered, is seen as a 
as a credible uh, partner and interlocutor uh, on the Israeli side and not systematically weakened uh, like has been the case uh, for many years, too many years now. Absolutely. It seems to me that uh, regardless of what the outcome is, if we want any force other than Israel to be overseeing the Gaza Strip, it's going to require a, a very weak or if not fully disarmed and demilitarized Hamas um, from what I can what I hear of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, with that, I, I think it's kind of time for us to wrap up, but I'm very hopeful that when we speak again, we will have some more good news to report with uh, some more hostages having been released. And also maybe we'll have something to talk about with your article being published. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put more pressure on you. It has to be, it has to be uh, finished beforehand, but uh, uh, of course, I look forward to, uh, to discussing that. And we always like to end on a more optimistic note. Uh, so I'll just say that the, the images and videos of the Israeli hostages uh, coming out of Gaza and reuniting with their loved ones um, some in, in very difficult circumstances, right? Uh, some, some of the uh, the children and women who have come out. Uh, not only did they maybe leave behind uh, a loved one, like we talked about, but some of them lost uh, siblings, parents, grandparents, neighbors on October seventh, uh, and their homes are still in in ashes. Uh, and so. While uh, the entire country and hopefully much of the world, I know not all the world, but much of the world looks on, uh, we have to keep in mind uh, that it's going to be a very, a very long uh, process for them, for them as well. Uh, but I am heartened uh, to, to see and, and to know firsthand uh, that all of Israel uh, is behind them and warmly embrace them and that uh, hopefully they can they can continue on uh, with their lives after this uh, horrible ordeal. So uh, hopefully more do do get released and uh, and that'll be all, all for the good uh, in the coming days. Amen. Thanks for that, Neri. I'll catch you next week. Thanks, Shani. Bye.